Every single week, uh, this is our eighth week. We're smack dab in the middle of this series called The Whole Story. Every week, we're, we're using this device. We're building on the story. We're calling it the story so far. And it goes like this. So this is where we've been. So if you're new with us this morning, um, you're going to be drinking from a fire hydrant in some ways. And this story so far helps, to, helps us to just keep up and to track with where we have been. So this is where we have been. God created a kingdom, and he is the king. But he made human beings to represent him in that kingdom. Adam and Eve, our first parents in the garden, they rejected that call, which had a consequence, and the consequence was sin and death. But God promised to defeat the serpent who tempted them to disobey and reject God. God promised to defeat that serpent through the seed or the offspring of this woman, Eve. And this offspring will also be the offspring of Abraham. And through Abraham's family, as the family line progresses, specifically Judah's royal seed, David. This is what we're adding to it this week. David. The covenant blessings will come to the world through this family line. Because all people were guilty and deserved death, the sacrifices of the Mosaic law revealed more clearly their need for a substitute. So this is kind of where we're orienting ourselves in the biblical storyline. And our hope is, my hope, is to help us to really make sense of the Scripture and see how the Scriptures are not just a collection of random ancient writings that somebody way back when kind of smashed together, but they're actually a unified whole telling one unified mega story of Jesus of Nazareth, this future offspring who would bring ultimate blessing and ultimate deliverance to the world that he serves. So where we are finding ourselves in the story this morning is in 2 Samuel verses, uh, chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. So if you've got a Bible with you, open it up, please. Fire up your app, turn it on, turn on your Bible. Uh, grab one of the, the black Bibles in the room. Use the table of contents if you need help finding your, your way around. Second Samuel is toward the beginning. I'm open to Second Samuel here. So this is the beginning. This is the end. You can see it's about a fifth, maybe a sixth of the way through your scriptures. Second Samuel 7, verses 12 through 13. And this is what the text says. This is God speaking through a prophet named Nathan to David, to King David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is God's word. Now we need to connect some dots here. Um, if you, if you recall, when, we were, when I was teaching on Abraham several weeks back, there is this, this line in God's, as God is making a covenant with Abraham, he's giving him promises. He's, he's promising that Abraham will have offspring. They're old. They uh, doubt the fact that they will even have a child, he and his wife, Sarah. And God promises that they will have a child. And they'll not only have a child, but they'll have land as well, that God will make them into a nation and 
that, they, that nation and these people, their offspring, will be, bring blessing to the nations around them. But one of the things that God mentions in this promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, is he, he says that kings will actually come from you. Kings are going to come out of this family line. And then if we fast forward to Genesis 49, the second to last chapter of Genesis, there's this prophecy to one of Abraham's great-grandsons, a guy named Judah, and the prophecy that Judah's dad gives to him, the blessing that Judah's dad gives to him, a guy named Israel, he says, Judah, the scepter, the king's ruling staff will not depart from your tribe, from your line. And the obedience of the peoples of the earth, will people will bow down to you. You can read that in Genesis 49.10. So, uh, I hope you're not bored with the Bible. We're going to do an overview here, and I'm going to try to catch us up from Genesis to 2 Samuel here. So I'm going to give you just a quick snapshot of, what, of, of where we've been in Genesis and then what these books of the Bible are about all the way up to 2 Samuel, right? So Genesis is where we have spent a majority of our time. We spent five weeks so far. We're in the, the eighth week right now. We've spent five weeks just in Genesis, and Genesis, it sets up the storyline of the scriptures. It sets up the creation of the world. It sets up a man and woman's rebellion and exile from the garden and from God's presence. And what we see in Genesis is that, that God does not abandon Adam and Eve, nor does he abandon their descendants, though they're exiled from the garden where his presence dwelled. But he actually makes covenant with some of their family members, Adam and Eve, and on down the line, Noah and Abraham. And then this covenant comes to Abraham and his family that is sure and solid and filled with promise. The closes, the, the, the story of the Genesis account, it comes to a close. And in the opening pages of Exodus, we see how Abraham's family has now blossomed into a nation, and they're living within a different nation, Egypt. And so Exodus is the storyline of this. Uh, it's the, the freedom story, essentially, of this exiled and wandering family who end up spending like 400 years as slaves. Egypt actually encompasses them and subjugates them and enslaves them. And the back half of Exodus is all about uh, the, the laws and the conditions that God will begin to hand down to this nation, showing them how to live. So the back half of Exodus is where we see where we get the Ten Commandments. Uh, God gives them to Moses, and he goes on to unfold an, a, a broader system of laws and, and ritual. And the law and the laws that God gave to, uh, to Moses, in summary, this is a big picture summary, they did a couple of things. Um, they showed Israel a picture, this nation, they showed Israel a picture of God's holiness, what he was like, who he was, what it required to be in his presence, which they had rejected. But secondly, it distinguished Israel from the other nations around them. You guys ever seen, I know you have, the, the kids' games, like which one is not like the others, where you've got like six pictures, you know, and five of them are identical, and then one of them has some variations. Well, Israel, among the other nations, is that variation. They were the set-apart ones. They were the set-apart nation. And so Exodus comes to a close, and then we open the pages of Leviticus, the third book in our Bibles, and this is a real clumsy one for us. We just don't really know what to do with Exodus. It's where all of our Bible reading plans get completely derailed, right? 
beginning of the year. Well, Leviticus is, the central theme in Leviticus is all about atonement. It's all about what is required to live in the presence of God. And so Moses is showing Israel how Yahweh is opening up a way to dwell in the divine presence of God again. And so there's all of these ritual sacrifices and cleansing that are meant to prepare the people of Israel to come to kind of the threshold of God's presence where then he will atone for them and he will cleanse them and he will purify them. And then we come to the fourth book in the Old Testament, Numbers, which tells the story of how God's people travel in the wilderness of Sinai all the way up to the border of the promised land. God says, go in. They say, no way. The people are vast, and they, they refuse to take possession of the land. And so God actually has judgment upon them, made them wander in the wilderness for a period of around 40 years. And so throughout the book of Numbers, God is seen as a holy God who cannot ignore sin and who will not ignore unbelief. But he's also seen as the one who faithfully keeps his covenant and patiently provides for the needs of his people. And then we come to the last book of the Torah, the fifth book of our, uh, of our Old Testaments or the Hebrew Bible, and, and it's Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy means second law, not another law, but it's actually a retelling of the first law. And so Deuteronomy recounts the stories and the teaching and the events of Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. It's putting emphasis on what has already come. And Deuteronomy draws to a close, and Moses dies, and a successor is raised up after him, a man named Joshua. And through a string of military victories under Joshua, Israel finally conquers the land of Canaan, this promised land that God promised way back when to Abraham. And, among, and, and through the leadership of Joshua, Israel comes into the land and they divide it up among the 12 tribes. And so now there is a nation and the nation has land. And it seems that the promise of God to Abraham is coming to pass. And so the people continue to, to live. And then we turn the page from Joshua to this book, Judges. And Judges is named after an interesting collection of individuals or tribal heads uh, who lead Israel after Joshua's death until the rise of the kingdom, which we see in David and in Saul and is instituted through a prophet named Samuel. And what is so uh, tragic, really, about Judges is that it is uh, this tragic pattern of, of people just continually rejecting God. The very closing sentence in Judges is they did what was right in their own eyes. And you just feel like, oh, Humanity is off of the rails. Then we turn in our Bibles to a little short book with just four chapters, Ruth. And the book of Ruth tells the story of this young Moabite widow who married an Israeli, who married a Hebrew. Her name is, is Ruth. And out of love for her widowed, as the story kind of develops, she has this mother-in-law, Naomi, and, uh, and her mother-in-law is widowed and Ruth comes and abandons her own culture, the Moabites, and she actually says to Naomi, she says, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And so she assimilates into the people of Israel. She becomes a Hebrew and an Israelite. And she would go on to meet a guy named Boaz, who is from the tribe of Judah. That should sound familiar. That's where this kingly line of Jesus is going to come through. And Ruth and Boaz, her husband, would become the great-grandparents of King David. 
And that's where we find ourselves in the story today. We turn our pages from Ruth into First and Second Samuel, which tells the history of Israel's kingdom or monarchy, which began actually under a king named Saul. He wasn't from the tribe of Judah. He was actually from the tribe of Benjamin. He starts okay, but ultimately uh, what we read in the story is that Saul is, is a man who is all about himself. And so the kingdom is stripped from Saul by God and given to a young boy, a guy named David, who will be described as a man after God's own heart. And First and Second Samuel, they tell the whole story of this. So First uh, and Second Samuel, it actually is one story. Um, it's, uh, it, it's, it's so long that it had to be divided up into two scrolls in the Hebrew Bible, which is where we get First and Second Samuel. We've just followed that tradition. The first scroll, First Samuel, the first part of the story. The second scroll is the second part of the story, but it's one unified story. It's a big story. There's a lot there, and so I want you to go and discover that story. It's intensely interesting. If you struggle with the Old Testament and, and you really come alive in storyland and in narrative, um, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, it's really, really, it's, it's helpful. It's, it's fun. There's a, a adventure. And the Bible is the most honest book on the planet. So there is a ton of dysfunction. Keep your eyes open for how the scriptures don't clean it up. They just don't. They tell the story of what is the story of humanity. Okay, so um, now I want us to, to kind of go back. So that's how we found ourselves here this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's kind of what's transgressed. It's uh, what's, um, what has transpired, rather. It's about a thousand years of history. And I'm not going to uh, tell David's whole story this morning, but I want first to recall our memory back to this promise that God gave to Abraham, that kings are going to come out of your line. And then this promise that God gave to Abraham's great-grandson Judah, the scepter is not going to depart. The peoples of the earth will obey you. And now we come to David, where that, that lineage is continuing. And like I said, I'm not going to tell David's whole story. It's good enough that you should read it or you should listen to it. But what I do want to do this morning with our time is highlight a key part of David's lineage and a key part of his legacy. And it has its roots in Genesis. And so here's, what's, here's what we're doing this morning. There's a thread that's being uh, in, inaugurated at the beginning in Genesis, and it starts to be pulled through the entire storyline of Scripture. And so I want to highlight it, and I want to make sure that as readers of the Bible, all 66 books by 40 authors, that we can see this. So this is what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about temples. We're going to talk, talk about temples, where uh, a place of God's presence, where his presence dwells in both places, you could think buildings, uh, or uh, as well in people. So in the opening pages of the scriptures, we have the Garden of Eden. And Eden is this physical place where our first parents, Adam and Eve, had direct contact with God. It says in the Genesis account that they walked together. God came and walked among them in the cool of the day. There was no barrier, no break between the presence of God and mankind. They were in perfect unity and in relationship. And so it would be accurate for us to say that the Garden of Eden was the residence of God and man, of God among mankind. We often think of the Garden of Eden as just being the place where God placed the man and the woman, and then he kind of 
you know, goes away. But the garden, it was a place of him dwelling. It was like residence for him with his people. And as Adam and Eve rejected God's rule as king and rejected their calling as his image bearers, they were expelled from his presence, which meant that they were exiled from the garden and they would be sent eastward. Anytime you see east in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, pay careful attention because that's a hyperlink in the scriptures that are telling us that humankind is moving away from the divine presence. Yet in the record of Adam and Eve's exile from the garden, we see God continuing to show up. He's continuing to reveal himself. He reveals himself to one of their sons, Cain, who murdered his brother Abel. He reveals himself to Noah. He shows up on the scene to Abraham and gives Abraham this like robust promise. He gives the same promise to Abraham's son, Isaac, the same promise to Jacob, and then on through Judah Last week, we saw how God revealed himself to Moses and Israel, the whole nation, by performing these powerful signs and by delivering them up out of the land of Egypt through this Passover lamb. And God revealed himself to Pharaoh, too, in all of that. Continually, Moses is going before Pharaoh, saying, let my people go. Here's a sign. You demand a sign. Here's a sign. And Moses continued to harden his heart, and God continued to harden his heart. And there was interplay between the two there. But eventually, judgment came on the people of Egypt, and all of their firstborn uh, were slaughtered in the land. And there was great like weeping and grief in the land, and, and, and the Israelites are delivered. And so that brings us to the story of the tabernacle. So the Israelites are rescued out of Egypt, and they're led by Moses. And as the story of God's people develops under the leadership of Moses, God gives Moses instruction in Exodus 25 to build a sanctuary, to build a tent, to build this thing called a tabernacle. It's the tent of meeting. It's an elaborate tent made out of animal skins and fabrics and, and, and wooden poles and beams and structures. It's large. And this is what God says to Abraham in Exodus 25. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell again in their midst. And this tabernacle would be adorned with silver and gold, which Eden had. It would be adorned with precious jewels, which Eden had. It would be adorned and like cherubim, these angelic figures would be sewn into the fabric of this tabernacle, which were in Eden with God and man as, as, uh, as Adam and Eve are, are exiled. There's a tree of life, a menorah in here, signaling the tree of life in the garden. The tabernacle is a temple. The biblical use, the ancient use, actually, not just of Hebrews, but of ancient people, um, temple always carried the idea of a residence where God dwelled, where, where a God of the people would dwell with them. It was a place of God's presence. So we, op we often think of, of temples in a similar way to how we think of the Garden of Eden. It's a place where we go to worship. But primarily, temple had this idea of God dwelling in that place. It's a residence of God, and the people would come there to meet with him. And so Exodus ends with the story of Moses and the people of Israel um, creating, completing this tabernacle. And this is what Exodus chapter 40 says. These are the closing sentences of the book of Exodus. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, 
And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, for the, for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. As we've kind of developed this storyline, we see that God's divine presence is often represented so far with fire and cloud. This tabernacle is God's residence. Are you hanging? Are, we, are you with me? Right. It's a storyline. So um, come and ask questions afterwards if, if it's not clear. But now we're going to fast forward five to 600 years in Israel's history here, in Old Testament history, to the point where David is anointed as the king of Israel. And, um, and, and David is actually a loyal subject of the first king who gets anointed, a guy named Saul. And through a series of disobedience and hard-heartedness and selfishness and idolatry, Saul has the kingdom of Israel stripped from his hands. And instead, through the prophet Nathan, or I'm sorry, through the prophet Samuel, uh, God anoints this young shepherd boy named David to be king. But, but he anoints David as king while Saul is actually still king. And David does not go to war to kind of like rise up and take the kingdom that's rightfully his, but he lets events transpire. He trusts the providence and the sovereign care of God, and he continues to serve King Saul until God provides his moment. And so David is a man with great character. He's a fierce warrior. He's fierce to his enemies. He's humble and he's fair with his people. He screws up royally, committing adultery and premeditated murder, but comes back and repents. He comes back to the Lord with genuineness and with longing, understanding the folly of his ways and the destruction that he has caused. Through his, through David's leadership, Israel, this kingdom now, they, they, they experience incredible prosperity through his leadership. It's a time of abundance. It's a time of national strength. And Israel now is a major player on the world stage. They're going to war with nations around them. They're able to defend themselves successfully. They've got incredible wealth. They're gaining attention of the people around them, which leads us out of the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle to the moment of building the physical temple in Jerusalem. And so a ways into David's reign, he tells this prophet who is a close confidant of his, an advisor of his, a guy named Nathan, David tells him about his desire. He's like, I, I want to build God a permanent temple residence. And so turn back in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're going to pick up the story here. and we, we need to not just pluck those verses out of their context, but make sure that they're embedded in context. If you're new with us, we're students of God's Word. We love God's Word. We read God's Word. We sit under God's Word. We try as best we can to follow and obey God's Word. It's important to us. It's not boring. It's intensely interesting. This is what 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7 verses 1 through 17 say. Read with me. Now when the king lived in his house, so King David, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar. It's a nice place essentially, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that's in your heart for the Lord is with you. But the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've, I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. So that's five to 600 years. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. 
you can see some humor in that. In all places where I have moved with all people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded or any of the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, this is what you should say to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you, David, from the pasture, from following the sheep. Remember, David is a shepherd that you should be prince or leader over my people Israel. And I've been with you, David, wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you, David, a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Remember, David is trying to build a place for God, and God is saying here, no, I'm going to build a place for you and for my people, and I will plant them, verse 10, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as they formerly did from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I'll give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and when you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up, raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him as a father and he shall be to me as a son. And when he commits iniquity or sin, I will discipline him with the rod of men, but with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of God. Here is what is happening. David asks God, he asks the permission to build God a temple, a house, and God's response is, no, I'm actually going to build you a house. I'm actually going to set up your kingdom. So what essentially is happening is that God has much bigger plans than David even realizes in this moment. Now, some of these Old Testament prophecies can be hard for Westerners like me to, to put together. Why? Because I like things in linear fashion. I like things spilled out. I like point A leads to point B, leads to C, D, all the way to the conclusion. But that's not how Eastern minds typically worked, and it's not how they wrote. And so often we'll see these prophecies in the Old Testament that operate kind of on two levels. And one level is like at a near level and the other is far. So has anybody in the room ever hiked in big mountains? Like big, big mountains. If you've hiked in big mountains, you know what a false summit is. Have you ever been disappointed by a false summit? A false summit is this summit that you see in your view and you're hiking up to it. And when you get to it, it's not actually the peak. It's just all you could see. And you get up to it and you're like, whoa, the summit actually goes up behind it. And so there is a great deal more of hiking and climbing to do behind a false summit. This prophecy to David is like that. David can see in this prophecy Solomon, his son coming from him, who will build a house and the kingdom will be given. And David anoints Solomon, his son, to be king after him. But God is seeing the big picture way beyond the view of David and of Solomon. He's seeing all the way down the line to a series of events and another man, capital M man, after his own heart. 
his only son, King Jesus, who this, this kingdom will culminate with and who will establish his kingdom in finality. So back to the story here of David and of Solomon. David, the king, he's old in years and he anoints his son Solomon to be king. And we move into the books of the kings, first and second kings. And first kings tells us that Solomon wanted to carry on what his dad David wanted to do. And so these are the words of Solomon in first kings chapter five. You know that my father David couldn't build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare with which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord, my God, has given me rest on every side. This is Solomon saying this. There's neither adversary or misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God as the Lord said to David, my father, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place shall build the house for my name. And so Solomon has this temple built. It takes him like seven years of intense labor the Israelites. And like the tabernacle before it, and like the Garden of Eden before that, this permanent temple features silver and gold, precious metals. Essentially, it features precious jewels. First Kings 6 says, on the walls of the house, he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers in the inner and the outer rooms. What does that sound like? It sounds like a garden. There's pictures of trees and pictures of flowers. And the cherubim, these angelic figures, are not just sewn into fabric, but they're engraved into the stone and wood walls. This temple, this permanent temple in Jerusalem, is a type of garden. It's a residence for Yahweh to mediate his holy presence to his people. And sure enough, in this moment, God's presence fills this temple, similar to what we read about when his presence filled the tabernacle. In 1 Kings chapter 8, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister there because of the cloud. It's choking them out. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The people of Israel know without a doubt through this manifestation of God's presence that he is dwelling among them. And so Israel rejoices and things go okay for like half a generation. And as is the case with Israel and with humanity, Solomon goes off the rails towards the end of his life. His sons do the same. One of his sons, Rehoboam, splits, fractures the kingdom of Israel. And now it's fractured into two, um, two tribes in the south and a kingdom in the north. You've got Judah and then the kingdom of Israel. And there's a series now of kings over both. And so the nation of Israel that's to be set apart from the other nations around it is now divided amongst itself, but also it is no longer distinct among the peoples of the world. They worship the gods of the surrounding nations around them. They syncretize with these other nations' worship. And God issues warning after warning after warning after warning like he does because he is patient. And they continually refuse him. Eventually, judgment comes. So as we fast forward even further in the storyline of the scriptures, God begins speaking through a prophet named Ezekiel. And Ezekiel begins to tell and warn Israel that God is going to remove his presence from the temple. He's going to move out from among them. 
due to their idolatry. This is what Ezekiel writes in Ezekiel 8. God is actually speaking to him, so he's recording the words of God. God says this, Son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations, like treachery, that the house of Israel are committing here. Why? To drive me far from my sanctuary. And then God says to Ezekiel, but you're going to, it hasn't even started yet. You're going to see far greater abominations or treachery. And so Ezekiel, that was in Ezekiel 8, Ezekiel 9 and 10 start to describe the glory of God departing from this temple as God is warning that judgment is coming now through foreigners. And sure enough, it will. It will come through the Babylonians. They will make war on Jerusalem. They will defame, destroy the temple of God's people, destroy the city, break down and burn its walls. And, and these Babylonians will steal the people of Israel away into their kingdom. And it's a time of incredible mourning and despair and lament for the people of Israel. And that goes on for about 70 years. And then the Babylonians are uh, overcome by the Persians. And this per Persian uh, king, a guy named Darius, he gives these Israelites, who now he is occupying them, and they're in his land that he occupies, he actually gives them permission to take thousands of people back into Jerusalem and to rebuild their place of worship and to rebuild their city. And so in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in our Old Testaments, we see the rebuilding of the temple take place and the rebuilding of Jerusalem as they migrate back. And and there's this moment in Ezra where they lay the foundation to this new temple where the old temple had been destroyed. And the priests, the Levites, they, they come out and there's great pomp and there's noise and they've got trumpets and, and there are prayers of dedication in this moment. And the younger people there are rejoicing at the foundation of the temple being laid. But the older people, Ezra describes, who had seen the first temple in its glory, they're weeping and the sound is mixing. So you can't tell like who's rejoicing and who's lamenting because it doesn't seem like the glory of the second is going to be like the glory of the first. And so these people of Israel, they dedicate the temple, they rebuild it. They end up building up the walls of Jerusalem. And what you don't notice in the scriptures is what we don't see. We don't see the glory of God, the glory of Yahweh filling the second temple again. You don't see it anywhere in the biblical record. The people will keep Passover. They'll do all the things, but God, he doesn't seem to be among them in his presence in the temple like he used to. And what does Israel do? They do what they do what humanity does. They slip back into rebellion and the patterns of the last 3,500 years of humanity continue. C.S. Lewis, he says, uh, human history is the long story of people trying to find something other than God, which will make them happy. And that is our story. And that is Israel's story. And so we see sin and we see warning and we see judgment and we see grace over and over and over again as God does not abandon his nation because he has made a promise to Abraham. And so God sends prophets to Israel who continue to speak on his behalf. And then about 400 years before Jesus arrives on the scene, God goes totally silent with the people of Israel. The prophets in Israel, they stop speaking, thus says the Lord. It's a time of national uh, tension as the Greeks are coming in and trying to like overpower and take and, and like 
and, and absorb Israel into their system and their economy and their culture. But the Hebrews, they keep the feasts, they keep Passover, they keep the temple rituals, sometimes under pain of death and torment and persecution. But their worship is it's polluted. Just put it at that. And Jesus comes and begins to tangle with them because they've added to the law of God and they've misinterpreted the law of God and they're harsher with the people of Israel than God even is himself. And then we come into the opening pages of Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 3. In our New Testaments, Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter 3 tell the genealogy of Jesus. And we start to see this family line connect now with Jesus. This royal line descends from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who gets renamed into Israel. And then Israel has a son, one of his 12 sons named Judah. And then the family line follows all the way to David. And from David, Matthew 1 and Luke 3 connect this genealogy to the Lord Jesus and as Luke's gospel opens up and starts to tell the story of this coming Savior, we read this oftentimes at Christmas, but an angel visits Mary, and this angel speaks to Jesus' mom, Mary, and Luke's gospel calls Jesus the son of David over and over and over and over again, connecting Jesus with David and with that family line showing essentially that Jesus is the faraway promised son of David. He's the peak behind the peak, so to speak. This is what Luke 1 says. Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb. You'll bear a son and you'll call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called son of the most high. And the, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, here is where it gets really interesting, I think. Remember, there's no record of God and his presence filling the second temple. Jesus himself, the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, Son of Abraham, the Son of Israel, the Son of David, will be brought into the temple and dedicated there to God himself. Jesus will have a yearning to be in the temple. At a census, when Jesus is a 12-year-old boy, he'll come back, his parents will leave with the family and the caravan, and they'll miss Jesus because he's like hiding out in the temple, um, just cutting it up with the, 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 the teachers of the law there, and they're amazed at his authority, and eventually his family comes back into Jerusalem and finds Jesus. What are you doing? And he's like, did you not know that I would be in my father's house, this place where he wanted to be? And then as Jesus grows into an adult and begins his ministry, he'll come again into the temple, and he, for, for Passover and for celebration, he'll come in and he'll come out. And at one point in the story, he will come as an adult and he'll issue judgment. He'll chase out the money changers in the temples and he'll prophesy that that temple will be torn down and rebuilt. And so if you fast forward to John chapter 2, we're, we're almost done here this morning. I just want to connect these dots for you. John chapter 2, Jesus comes into the temple in verse 13. And it says this, the Passover of the, of the Jews was at hand and, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem 
in the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers were sitting there and making a whip. So he took the time to make a whip of cords. He drives them all out of the temple with the sheep and with the oxen. This is no small feat or affair. He pours out the coins of the money changers and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? If you're going to come in here and exercise authority, you better show us a sign. You better show us some sort of authority. And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken us 46 years to rebuild this temple and you'll raise it up in three days. But, John tells us, he was speaking about the temple of his body. Notice that. He's speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture, and they believed the word that Jesus had spoken. In the New Testament, in Colossians chapter 2, it says this about Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, of Godhood, dwells in Jesus' body. And then the writer Paul would say, you, church, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. This moment in John and all the Gospels, there, there comes a point when Jesus turns away from the temple and he walks out of the temple. The God-man, God himself, will walk out of the temple. He's come incredibly near. He's come to us as one of us. He's put a face on. He's in the flesh. He dwells with his people. But he walks out of the temple in judgment. He's removing his presence. He's signaling the judgment to come. But it will not end there. We, as the people of God, are God's new temples. Jesus will be crucified he will suffer as a servant of God and as a servant of people. will take the penalty of our sin upon himself. And he will be crucified as the king of the Jews. But he won't stay in the ground. He'll rise from the grave. He will leave us with his bodily presence, but he will send us his spirit. The scriptures call the Holy Spirit also the spirit of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit will fill all of those of us who put our faith in him. And our bodies, our flesh, is now, are now being used as new temples. Carrying the presence of God wherever we go. Imaging him across the whole earth. This was the original design of our first parents in Eden before we fractured the relationship and moved away from him. We were the image of God. We were made in his likeness, meant to scatter and to fill the entire earth as his co-heirs, as his representatives. And now through the Holy Spirit, God himself is dwelling. He's taking up residence in us. This is why it is so important when our New Testaments teach us that we are God's temples and we are to care for our own bodies and we are to spread out across the globe and to fill it and to multiply. 
the God-man, the king of the kingdom, the son of Abraham and the son of David. He resides with us and he has filled his new temples with his glory. Here's the verse where I will close. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. If you're wondering how to connect all of that, if you're wondering if what I'm even saying is true, I don't think it could be communicated more clearly than this, you guys. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you, and that you there is plural, that you, church, are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, church. You are that temple. Through Jesus Christ, God himself dwells with man. Do you see the continuity of the scriptures as this thread of the temples is being pulled through to the the end, to Revelation, when this garden will be a garden city and God will dwell in unbroken presence with us until that time he's dwelling within us. And we look forward to his return. Pray with me. Father, this is a a lot. Um, Biblical theology is deep and it's wide and it can be hard for us to make sense of it, but we, uh, Lord, I pray that we would be students of your word, that we, uh, even where your word perplexes us and where there's still many gaps for us, that we wouldn't just uh, push back from the table and push away from the subject but as your people, that we would lean in and we would see the glory of the scriptures that reveal you and that reveal your ways among us and that reveal who we are. And as your scriptures reveal Jesus of Nazareth, that we as your people, that those in this room who are on the fence or are needing renewal would see again that this story is continuous and it is consistent and we can rely on the scriptures and the scriptures reveal to us Jesus of Nazareth who was given for our trespasses as the Passover lamb and who was also raised from the dead, justifying us and showing us that death has no dominion over you and that you promise us, Lord Jesus, that even though we die, we too will be raised to new life, to live forever in your presence. So would you give your people faith, please? In Jesus' name, do this. Amen.